1: Hello and welcome to a brand new ArsBlog Arscast, right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Sorry, I just have to unplug something there. How are you? Hope you're well. Hope all is good with you and yours. Uh, it's another week, another week closer to the start of the new season. Preseason has begun. Some of the players are back. Some of them aren't, of course, because they've got an extended holiday. Some of them are still at the European Championships. Euro 2020 is almost coming to an end, and what a week of football it was. I mean, if you're Spanish or if you're Danish and you're listening to this, you're thinking, that really wasn't a great week of football. Andrew, what are you talking about? But if you're English or Italian, you're probably on my side. I'm looking at it from the neutral perspective. It was very enjoyable to watch the two semi-finals. Um, the quality of the football, uh, for the most part, has been excellent throughout this tournament. But they've been two very exciting semi-finals, and it sets up a, a really, really interesting and intriguing final between Italy and England. Sorry, Bako Sakas England to give it its full and proper title. Boy, what a what a tournament he has had! It's. Um, it's great to see it isn't it you know i get we might have concerns about you know the the physical impact of the tournament on him after a long season and and that is something we're going to have to contend with and we'll talk about that in a moment or two with uh, with our guest but just in terms of his own development as a player as a person as a personality You know, he really seems to have flourished or blossomed or taken a step forward, whatever way you want to put it in this tournament. The talent, as we know fine well, as as people who have been watching him week in, week out for some time, is unquestionable. But the speed of the progression of his career is really something as well. It wasn't long ago that he was making his debut for Arsenal, and it wasn't long ago that he was being uh, fast-tracked through the youth system. He's come a long way. He's just 19 years of age. He's starting in a, in a major semifinal for England. He's helping them uh, into the final. Uh, I don't know. Do you get an assist if it's an own goal? I don't know. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. But I think we can all see that that was a sack assist if it wasn't an own goal. Raheem Sterling was there and he was going to turn it in. And it's just been fantastic uh, to see because we were worried, a little bit worried, I suppose is the wrong word, but it, it was striking, wasn't it, that at a major tournament, there was such little Arsenal representation. And it's not usually the case and it hasn't been the case for so long. Usually at an international tournament, there are Arsenal players all over the place. There were times where, uh, you know, if you're looking at it from a neutral, you were looking, well, uh, I'm picking the team with the most Arsenal players against a team playing with slightly fewer Arsenal players. As it was, we just had four. Kieran Tierney, Granit Xhaka, Bernd Leno didn't play at all for Germany. And Bakayo Saka, who has been the Arsenal story of the tournament so far, Who knows what's going to happen on Sunday? I think this is set up to be a a really, really interesting game. But look, let's talk a bit more about England. We'll talk a bit about Italy, Saka, the tournament itself, and all the latest bits and pieces from an Arsenal perspective. With my guest this week, delighted to welcome from CBS Sports, it is James Bench. Hello, James.
2: Hi, Andrew. How are you doing?
1: I'm good. As an English man, as an English fan, how are you today? We're recording on Thursday the night after or the the day after the night before when england made it through to the final of euro 2020 uh, how are you feeling about it
2: i oh, yeah, i'm feeling phenomenal um i yeah i mean nothing kind of prepares you for for this it's like um it, it it was just a bit of a a dream in the end i think the stress kind of made it a little bit more enjoyable um even the way that for once kind of it felt like and, you know, I'm certain there are other countries that will go, actually, this isn't the first time that you've got really lucky at a major tournament. <laughs> but, you know, the fact that this time England did get the rub of the green, they earned their luck, but by God, they got a big helping of it. I mean, it was really special. I think, you know, everyone on social media, everyone listening to this, is, has seen kind of the excitement emanating out of England. It's quite a crap country to live in a lot of the time, socially, politically, mm. and sporting in uh, sporting terms as well. Right now, it's great. It's a really wonderful experience being English right now, right. which won't last. <laughs> well,
1: it might, it might not. You never know. I mean, it's, it's a hell of a final coming up. I mean, going into the tournament, there was a a sense, I think, that, you know, this was a really talented group of English players. Uh, you know, maybe question marks, I suppose, over Gareth Southgate and his ability to get as much out of them as as is necessary, you might say, to win a, a major tournament. So have you been impressed with him? I mean, I think on a on a personal level, I think, you know, um, the way he sort of handled himself around the start of the tournament, when talking about the taking of the knee, the, the the essay that he wrote, I think it was in the Players' Tribune, was really, really powerful. And I do think that as a, as a guy, he comes across really well and is a great representative of... England and English football, but you know ultimately what happens on the pitch is how people decide, you know w- whether you're worth anything to them in inverted commas or not, right? So you can be the nicest guy in the world, but if you don't produce, or your team doesn't produce, nobody cares about that kind of thing. So have you been in any way surprised about what he's got out of this English team, or, or you know, is it a is it a case that look he has so much talent at his disposal? This considering. Uh, the tournament is more or less where England should be. How do you view that?
2: I, I certainly don't think it's unreasonable to to have that level of expectation uh, for this squad. I mean, maybe I think it would have been fair to say that this is such a young squad, and I'm sure we'll talk about players like Bukayo, mm. um, that, 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 that maybe they merited a bit of time and a bit of patience, which the English public aren't great uh, at are giving. I mean, on Southgate specifically, you, you hit the nail on the head in terms of Southgate the man. And I think that always means that... You know, there is a desire, I think, from a lot of English, but not all of it, it should be said, but from a lot of it, just to see him succeed because he he represents, again, coming back to this idea of Englishness, he, he represents the values that we would like to see more in this country. Tolerance, open-mindedness, um, a willingness to, to stand up for your beliefs and to, to do the right thing when sometimes it's a little easier to play the game. But tactically, I think it was fair to, to maybe question where England were at, what had been achieved. Obviously, a great run to the semi-finals in, in 2018, but it was done in quite a reactive way. Um, and I think it was really clear in that, that semi-final against Croatia that the ideas weren't always, you know, the ideas for changing the game. Southgate hadn't hadn't quite developed yet. I think we've seen a lot of that, maybe not, not in-game, although he seems to re- judge really well, I think, when to make those changes and which changes to make. Particularly bringing someone like Jack Grealish in, it always seems like Grealish comes on at just the right moment to to just swing the tide England's way a little bit. But again, you know the flexibility to to trust himself to play a back three uh, against Germany and, and to play that reactive uh, grinder game down, and know that we'll you know we'll, we'll 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 try and win this in the final ten fifteen minutes as they did. But then, and then to follow that up with a really expansive, aggressive, energetic performance against Ukraine. This is a, a tournament where we're seeing different sides of England. He he's not a master tactician, but the international game doesn't either require or allow you to be. Mm. You know, there, there is not much time to to drill things into these players. Um, a lot of it is man management, and my, my God, you can just see the atmosphere he's created. It it is prevalent in every every touch, every tweet every everything, you know, I mean, there's a a real confidence and composure to this team. They work well together. I mean, one thing, I'm just doing a team of the tournament for CBS and, you know, the way that, because he's trusting Kyle Walker, who maybe wasn't a lot of people's choices right back, he wasn't mine, I'd have played Alexander-Arnold, but he's got Walker working in such a way that, you know, there these bursts of of speed whenever the ball goes over England's high line. We saw that last night with with Damsgaard two Mm. or three times. I think it looked like he was away. But, you know, he's picked the right right back there that can (laughs) cover ground like Roadrunner or Speedy Gonzalez. It's amazing. I think some of it is just things like picking the right players, but atmosphere, 10 out of 10. Tactics, 8, 9 out of 10. You know, he's the whole package. Results
1: results so far, 10 out of 10. And to get to the final, having conceded just one goal is really is really quite something. I mean, it it is... I saw people after the game last night, you know, talking about perhaps, you know, 2-1 up Denmark were absolutely shattered and knackered Mm -hmm. and down to 10 men. He made a change. He, He took Jack Grealish off, having put him on, and there was no question of injury about that. So, you know, maybe he knows the right time to take Jack Grealish off. But, you know, some might say, well, that's not particularly... Adventurous, Maybe you should, you know, really turn the screw on someone like Denmark. But in those circumstances, with the stakes that high, you know, you can kind of understand why a manager is going to go for it in, uh, you know, at least try and hold on to, to what he's got. And the way the game played out, really, I know Denmark had a bit of possession in that final 15 minutes, even mm-hmm. though they were down to 10 men, a couple of corners, which might have, you know, been something, but weren't in the end, you know there were spells of possession from England that you, you know, with all due respect to all of our English listeners out there, uh, and I say this as an Irishman who can stand in in appreciation of something like this, for an England team to kind of knock the ball around the way you <laughs> expected, you know, Spain circa 2010 to do it when they, you know, were 1-0 up and they'd see out a game just by keeping the ball, you know, that's kind of impressive in its own right.
2: Oh, it was really... It really worked. It worked a treat. I think. I mean, one interesting thing with Trippier bringing him on was, yeah, it felt like a defensive move, but Trippier was clearly given license to go upfield. I think then every single time, it was even, I think, in the the fifth minute of the second half of extra time, he was going, mm. "I might just take this into the corner." I was like, "Kieran, there's ten minutes to go. You're not going to keep the ball in the corner for ten minutes." But you know. Yeah, yeah. I, I certainly think England maybe could have could have gone for the throat and tried to get that second goal. But and you don't want to just sort of look at the tactics and work backwards and go, well, the result happened. But it, but in the end, clearly Denmark didn't really have a great shot on goal in that second half of extra time. So you probably do have to say it works. I mean, he's it's not always the prettiest when England are defending a lead, but it's a, a bank of two solid defenders, Calvin Phillips fantastic pressing energy and you know clearly Marcello Bielsa's murder balls do uh do help quite a lot in terms of getting you fit for a major <laughs> yeah. tournament um you know they don't they don't let teams have good chances uh you know I, I would probably contend that that Thomas Muller shot is the only real you know should have scored it moment that an opponent has had against England and it's not always the prettiest but pretty much every tournament you care to mention the team that don't concede good chances will end up in the final and we'll see what happens from there but I don't think Italy will get lots of opportunities to score.
1: Yeah I mean look particularly in a short tournament like this 7-8 games whatever it is defensive solidity goes a long way and maybe you know the goals weren't quite coming for England in the in the early part of the tournament but you know they've opened up a bit I think you know the inclusion of Bakayo Saka I think we have to talk about uh, because this is an Arsenal podcast after all you know has created um, you know I, I, I looked at that game last night and I, I'm a neutral you know watching that game and I was disappointed Saka came off not simply because uh, I'm an Arsenal fan. I, I'm I'm glad for him, and I want to see him do well. But I think England were dangerous down that right hand side, more dangerous with him on that right hand side uh, than they were when the change happened. And I do wonder if something like Saka and Grealish as a combination might be something that that that's worth uh, trying. But for Saka to come in. And to have this much of an impact, it's no surprise to you. It's no surprise to me, no surprise to any of our listeners. And we've said before on the podcast that, you know, it is a bit of a surprise to maybe some of the wider footballing public who haven't paid a great deal of attention to him or, or to Arsenal. But, you know, I thought it was really interesting a couple of weeks ago. Did you see the video at Freddie Yumberg? He did the, the coach's voice video Ooh. where he said when he took over the under 23s or maybe it was the under 18s I think he came in first and he was working with the under 18s and one of the first things that he did was he said I'm taking Bakayosaka Saka to play with me like basically up an age level because he yes. recognised that that he was there so he comes into the Arsenal team we were on that tour in America and we looked at him we said wow this guy is ready but we weren't quite expecting him to do what he did that next season. And here he is now, first name on the team sheet kind of player for for Arsenal, for Mikel Arteta. Uh, and he's still only 19 and he's doing it for England. He's doing it in a European set, uh, European uh, Championship semi-final. His progress is nothing short of spectacular, is it?
2: It's it is unbelievable. I was talking to someone at Arsenal who said, at this rate, you know, he's on course to be a £150 million player very soon. And then I said, well, I think uh, he's no, not don't. already there.
1: <laughs> don't <laughs> let them think not. about him in terms of numbers.
2: <laughs> yeah. Let's, let's not think about the price at which Arsenal should consider selling yeah. Bukayo Saka because, good God, don't ever ever imagine, you know, much too early to be imagining mm. those things. I, I you know, it's, it, I go back to what you said there. I think it's the thing of, you know, when you're watching um, as an Arsenal or an England fan, when Bukayo Saka is on the pitch or at, has the ball. I, just, I feel confident, I feel safe, I know that he's going to make the right decision ten times out of ten. I, I don't remember a, a moment in either of these games or well, the three games that he's played I think it is where he's he's kind of you, you've seen an attack building and mm. he's not seen it or he's not made the right decision and for a 19 year old that is, it's truly remarkable I don't understand how he can do that because you know every, everything we know about football, sport life is you need to see these, you know, you need to see these scenarios to know what to do, but he doesn't. He he knows first time. Um, you know, the the run for, and a great pass by Kane. I know we, the only time we'll praise mm-hmm. Harry Kane on this podcast. I'm never
3: sure. heard of him. <laughs> um,
2: <laughs> but I thought it was, the run was judged mm. to perfection. The touch was a little heavy, I thought, but then it's the, that heavy touch doesn't set him out of his stride. It doesn't, it, it doesn't discombobulate him. He keeps going, makes that cut back. So many moments where the ball came to Saka deep, as well, and he would he would immediately turn, get England ten yards up the pitch, and he'd he'd draw a foul. Mm. These are are not the attributes I associate with a 19-year-old. And I mean, by all accounts, he's been a wonderful addition to the squad. I don't think you know Luke Shaw was saying he didn't really know much about him, but he's you know someone that they. It brings a real joy to the dressing room. Um, you know, it brings a joy to England fans as well. You see it on Twitter. It's people that never, you know, never really watch football, let alone, you know, Arsenal. They just have fallen head over heels with Bukayo Saka. It's, it's really nice to share. it. It's like when your favourite indie band gets big, except it's better than that because um, you, there's you, not you, that sort of like... You don't want to share those bits. <laughs> I do, I'm, I'm really happy to share the stack this so <laughs> everyone help yourselves to this joy that we've had um, I mean the trajectory is remarkable as well I mean it's about a year since he scored his first Premier League goal against Wolves and you know as I said two years <clears throat> since we were talking to, to this kid on the American tour and we're like well he, he's a smart kid two, two or three years time he's going to be one to <laughs> watch and he's just going to come back next season and I'm you know, I think he's going to be phenomenal. Mm. It's only, it feels like the only thing that can stop him is injuries because everything that's in his control, he seems to just judge to perfection.
1: Um, yeah. Even, even his choice of inflatables is is beyond reproach, you know? Um,
2: <laughs> but I mean, I, I do think you're right. I, does he start the final for you? Oh, absolutely. I, 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 un, I, I I didn't want him to come off. And I thought maybe it wasn't the right decision. Mm. I think eventually Sterling got into the groove and he found that same spot that Saka did, you know, in behind the, the left centre-back. But And yeah, he probably won't play the 90 or 120 minutes. But I just, I think he, early on, he will he is someone you can rely on. Mm. He, he's someone that will, will make a few chances, will not give the ball away. He's he, He's a guaranteed seven, eight out of 10, at least, you know, if not more. And I think early in the final, you want that. Maybe, you know, later on in the game, that is actually when you turn to a Grealish or a Foden or a Sancho that might, you know, that, that is willing to... I, mean, I wouldn't say risk a bit more, because we know Bacayo is, is able to commit and beat and create. Yeah. But it is a bit more just go for goal. Um, I think he'll keep it, you know, Bucaio Sak will keep it tight. He'll play really well. And then maybe if you need to, you can bring on a player that's a bit more swing for the fences later on.
1: All right. Well, look, we'll, we'll see what happens there. Uh, Italy on Sunday then, the the game... On Tuesday night between Spain and Italy, I think in some ways was it was great to have a semi-final. I'm not downplaying the England Denmark semi-final at all in terms of quality, and I think there's an emotional yeah. uh, thing there for a lot of for for you and England fans. You know that 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 experience is is very unique because this is your country, this is your team that you're invested in, but as a as a game of football, I think from my perspective from a neutral perspective, I think Spain versus Italy was fantastic um, and a really high quality game which I think is representative of the tournament itself and that 's something we might chat about now in just a second but given what Italy have done during the final Roberto mancini i 'm not going to say reinventing himself but but sort of uh, a different Roberto Mancini than the one perhaps we saw at Manchester Mm -hmm. City. He's got Gianluca Vialli there. He's got the guy who looks like... um, George's dad from from Seinfeld, but much younger. That
2: guy, but highly stylized. Someone made a great point that he looks a bit like if you put a comedy comedy glasses and a comedy nose <laughs> on um, Christoph Waltz.
1: <laughs> I can see where that's coming from, you know. Uh, but you know, this is a very talented, well-disciplined Italian team. Perhaps a little bit uh, flawed in in the sense that their attack isn't quite as good as it it might be. Um, as opposition for England, how do you view them and, you know, the final itself as a as an opportunity for England to win their first major tournament since 1966? It feels like a very classic final, England versus Italy at Wembley Stadium, home advantage for England. But, you know, I don't think Italy will be in any way cowed by that. It really is set up to be a, a fantastic game.
2: It feels like something out of the, like, Early years of football, like mm. you can only see in, in black, the grainy footage, and <laughs> um, just kind of looks like it's at one and a half speed, and it's, <laughs> it's, it's over by an extraordinarily posh man. Yeah, I, I certainly, I would say, from a starting point, I'm incredibly relieved as an England fan that it's not Spain because they they've really come into their really? own. Really, um,
1: really, you would have you would have been more afraid they, of Spain than Italy.
2: I just think that they're a better opponent against or they're, they're a better mi- they would find England a little bit easier because I think they'd be a bit more comfortable getting on that possession
1: right. treadmill yeah yeah yeah
2: just getting the ball moving and um I think you know Pedri and Busquets could really have exerted some some control on that English but equally like England can can chase like pretty much no one in the tournament for, for, for an Italy perspective I think it's really clear like they're missing spin out Zola a huge amount him and uh mm. Insigne that was I thought you have got less of Insigne, more than Emerson was was a decent alternative at left back. He, he bombed on in in the way we might consider a classic left back would, but you know everything else didn't quite click. Verratti wasn't making those sort of drifts out to the left to mm. to gang up on that right flank. Um, you know and the same with Insigne. I think he did, his movements were all a little bit more out of sync. It is it's they are a really intriguing stylistic. M- match for England in that they are a little bit more possession-oriented and progressive, slightly more composed, but equally um, there is a real uh, opportunity for England to exploit some of the, the relative weaknesses in the, the defence the same way Spain did, but kind of not really running with a, a traditional centre-forward. Whoever you have there, and let's it'll be Kane, and he'll, but if he does that thing that he wants to do, of drifting deep, of not offering that focal point. Well, then that might, you know, that might suit uh, England in the same way it suited Spain. Don't give Chiellini and Benucci the man that they can hit, you know, that mm. they can defend and impose themselves on. And instead, give yourself Saka and uh, Sterling and Mount running in behind. It, it hasn't worked well because Kane, at this tournament, because Kane doesn't have that instinctive relationship that it took him five years to build with Son. Mm. But it's getting there. There were little flashes. Um, and that's what, you know, I think if you can attack the spaces in behind, there's a real chance for, for England. Equally, Italy could just get you on that possession, you know, get you on that. What was it? The the carousel that um, <clears throat> Ferguson said Javi and, and Iniesta were, where Verratti, Jorginho just dominate the ball. Barella punches through the middle. Um, I mean, Kimmich, uh, not Kimmich, uh, Goretzka did a really good job of just exposing the, those gaps in the lines for Germany. So I think it's going to be intriguing. I think it's a little bit more balanced. Um probably I'm leaning towards Italy. I just I just trust that midfield, that one I to more. But you know, Verratti is the best. But I thought he was dreadful, wasn't he, against mm. Spain? So it's so it's a bit more <laughs> unpredictable, I think, Italy than Spain.
1: Yeah, I think what's nice as well, and, you know, again, I say this from the neutral perspe- perspective as somebody who wants to see a great game of football on Sunday evening, is that both semifinals went to 120 minutes, both went to extra time it sort of evens things up a little bit in terms of the, the physical aspect of it, the fatigue. And I know that England played a day later, but they also have home advantage. So look, it's set up to be, a, a I think, a, a great game. Well, hopefully a great game, not one of those where the two teams kind of cancel each other out and something scabby happens in the last minute. I hope that's not the case. So will it be coming home or will it be going to Rome? We'll wait and see uh, on Sunday evening. But in terms of the tournament overall, I have to say I've been surprised with how, how good it's been and how much I've enjoyed it. And there are a number of reasons is that for me anyway, uh, I know this is in some ways Arsenal related. I felt quite football fatigued at the yeah. end of the season. Um, given what we'd had to endure from an Arsenal perspective but also because of just the schedule which was relentless um, after the lockdown and after restart there was no pre-season we've had all football all the time so when there were, even when there was no Premier League games there were three uh, European or international games for the players to deal with so I did wonder if the the effects of the long season, if you like, would catch up with the players. And that might be uh, something that impacted the quality of the football. I wasn't sure what the multi-city setup was going to be like, because we're used to, or the multi-country setup, I should say. I wasn't sure what that was going to be like, because we're used to the the tournaments happening in one country and going to various stadiums. But you you, you have all the fans and it creates that kind of, that community atmosphere around the games. But I, I, I really think that this Uh, has been the most enjoyable international tournament for a long time. Um, uh, You know, I know people uh, of countries that have won things in the last few years might differ with that, but you have a different outlook on on this uh, than me. But I just think that in terms of incident, emotion, I hate to use the word narrative because you can have a narrative about anything. You know, you can have a narrative about England missing a penalty and going out in the semifinals with Gareth Southgate as manager or Gareth Southgate, you know, making up for that and winning the Euros as manager for England. You know, you can skew the narrative whatever way you want. But it has been just one of those where it's been a pleasure to watch for like, I'm not going to say 100% of the time, but like 85% of the games have been Pretty good, some great stuff, great goals, and and great stories throughout.
2: Yeah, I've loved it. I think you know, going back to 2016, we all had the doubts about the 2014 Euros, and it's. I think luckily, it is just about the, the right level of quality still, mm. where you know you, that and that ex, where it, it there's not bad teams and there's not many bad games. Um, you you couple that with the 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 joy that you know a team like Switzerland can upset the apple cart but in mm. the end we've we've had kind of is that the Goldilocks thing particularly I think with with big teams where you want to see big names fall early on I, I really enjoyed you know that round of sixteen I mean mm. some well, of that was phenomenal particularly the the day with the France game and the Spain Croatia game but that in the end when you get to the the semi-finals you're seeing four exceptional teams uh, four of the best in Europe you know that the, the the good te- good teams fell, but actually the best still still made it through. And I think one of the choices maybe we were all a little bit wrong in assessing some of these teams, like France. We just thought firepower and quality on paper would would paper over the cracks. I think it's maybe been a tournament where we've seen that actually you can do a bit more than we thought with international players. You can be a bit more expressive, inventive. Um, you can have more of a system, more of a press. And those are the teams that have really shone through, haven't they? Italy, yeah. Italy, early on in the tournament, were a really wonderful. You know, they were the appointment to view of the group stage. Um, but all of these teams have been really interesting. This and again the right mix between us seeing top quality, world class players at their very peak. You know, your Raheem Sterling's, your um, who are you know. At, at, I can't think of another off the top of my head. Uh, but we've had
1: some good players, haven't we? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, for sure. I mean, even someone like, uh, you know, uh, someone like Locatelli, who came yes. in and was, was just wonderful to watch and then hasn't been really able to start again for Italy. You know, the, the the goal that he scored in that game where he volleyed the pass out to the to the right wing and then followed it. I can't even remember who it was uh, against at this stage. Um, but, you know, there, there have been players. Of course, there have been players. And
2: we've we had... Stars that have kind of emerged. I mean, I really seen very little of, of Mailer and Spinazzola. Mm. They've they've kind of come out of nowhere. You could say the same thing about about someone like Patrick Schick. Mm. You know, it's it's not quite the same as you know when you watch the World Cup uh, and you know when people talk about watching World Cups in the '70s and you were like I genuinely had no idea who this footballer was. But you know, you're, you know, let's be honest, not as many people watch Serie A week in week out as might claim to do so on Twitter. And so it has been a bit of a joy to, uh, to to see these new players who are at the highest standards and you not really come into the tournament with any notions mm. or any great idea about them. Yeah. Yeah, loved every minute. But-
1: I have to say I have been uh, astonished, maybe is the wrong word, but, but looking at Pedri playing for Spain and you know, to do what he's doing at 18 years of age, he reminds me in terms of the, not the, quite the same player, but in terms of the composure and the ability that he has, he reminds me of Sesc Fabregas, just yeah. that, that, that quality at 18 years of age. I find it incredible that after a long season with Barcelona and then the European Championships, which has ended in, you know, disappointment at at sort of not the final hurdle, but, you know, almost the final hurdle. He's going to go and play in the Olympic Games. I mean, what is going on with Barcelona that they don't have anyone who says, look, this kid's 18. I mean, we're going to face a similar situation with with Bakayo Saka. I'll talk to you about that now in a second. But but Pedri, as one of the standout players of the tournament, for me, uh, I'm, you know... Barcelona are a mess in many ways, but this guy could well be part of a, a rebuild for them.
2: And that's why you have to manage him so carefully. And you mm. have to kind of be willing to disappoint him on occasion and say, look, I'm sorry, um, the Olympics, not not this time. Maybe mm. in the future, who knows? I mean, Spain are always going to be a team that are competing to get to the Olympics and then competing when they get there. And yes, it's hard. It's a youth. It's a youth tournament, but... You know, you have to be willing to make those those really tough decisions and just sometimes you have to put your foot down and say no and say we're not going to play you. And I mean, when it was interesting, when you were talking about Fabregas, I did wonder, are you going to say Wilshere? And I, I mean, yeah, again, another different sort of player. But mm. but in, in terms of having that worry that, you know, if I were a Barcelona fan, I, I would start thinking, when does this all become too much? Because people who watch Barcelona regularly tell me it's it's not that dissimilar. Um, obviously, they've got you know Messi to do a lot of the offen- offensive burden, but after that, Pedri's carrying a huge load on his, mm. his shoulder for a, for a teenager. And I think this is the you know this is the period where things can start growing in the wrong direction. Where you know you can at one awkward injury now begets another, begets another. This is when you need to be treating players with with kid gloves, even if that means a little bit of short term pain, and that's. that's hard at a club like Barcelona and it'll be hard with Saka at Arsenal, but you've got to be thinking about 10 years of Pedri, 10 years of Saka, how do you get the most out of that? Not the start of this season.
1: Well, that's very true. And that is the reality I think we're going to have to contend with at the start of of this season with, with Bakayo Saka, because as great as it is to see him do what he's doing for England, and it is, and I think for him as a player and a person, it's going to be hugely beneficial. Ultimately, Arsenal will benefit from that as well we have to be cognizant of the fact that he is just 19. He played, uh, only Shaka played more outfield minutes than him last season. And Shaka is, you know, one of those remarkably durable footballers. I know he missed a few games this season or last season, but in general, he's not someone who misses games. But, you know, when you look at the schedule, when you look at Brentford as the opening game, and then you've got Manchester City and Chelsea, and you're thinking, well... We're probably going to have to do this without Bakayo Saka starting anyway, and maybe depending on how far England go, and uh, well, how far we know how far they're going to go, but like what happens in this game, because players can be affected by the outcome of a final or or a performance in a in a in an international tournament. I think Saka will be fine, whatever happens. You know, I don't think it's. It's going to be quite our Shavin after Russia did badly, and he sort of <laughs> he he took to the pies for twelve months. But
2: they did really badly, yeah.
1: Um, but you know, making sure this summer that he gets the rest is—I'm not going to say it's a challenge; it's a reality, isn't it? It is a—it is a thing that we have to just kind of accept because the demands placed on footballers. Nowadays are are high anyway, but in particular the last twelve eighteen months have been ridiculous. Um So there there comes a point where you have to say, for the long term benefit of the player and the club and the team, we have to maybe just sit them down for a couple of weeks more than people might like.
2: Yeah, it's something Arsene Wenger always did did so well, and I think he also understood that you know when when those German players came back after the the World Cup that mm. there, there was going to be a come down, there was going to be a drop in performance. If I remember rightly. And I'm sure Mesut Özil fans will correct me if I'm wrong, but there was a, you know, all the players were a little bit below, Mm. you know, their their best level for quite a while because I think, you know, again, I I agree with you that Saka has the sort of head on his shoulders that he won't get too high and he won't get too low. But if there's any moment where you might get too high or too low, it's it's going to be in the Mm. aftermath of this final. At least you would say that. Arsenal are in a position to, to weather his absence a lot more than if he was a central midfielder, in which case, by God, we'd be doomed. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, this is, this is an opportunity for Pepe, who's had a whole summer off. Yeah. Perish the thought, if he's still here and it, it's looking more likely, it's an opportunity for William. You know, there are players that, that need to think of this as a time where they go, well, you know, if I'm a right winger, I need to make sure that when Saka comes back, he goes and plays on the left wing. Or, you know, or vice versa. Um the, it would be better, I think, for Arsenal, even this season, because Saka could well win you a lot of games around Christmas time, to just hold him out for as long as you, you feel is necessary, to give him time then in pre-season training or uh, mid season training, but mm-hmm. his pre season to catch up. And just, you know, wait it out, be strong, even if that's the sort of you know, going into September. It's for the good of Saka because you need to be able to build around him for five, six years, and you need to kind of convince him that Mm. you will do everything to to make this the perfect environment for him.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think everyone listening will probably understand the logic behind that, but when we're playing Chelsea, when we're playing Man City, and maybe he's not in the squad... You know, that look, it's not as if there aren't enough sticks to be people around with from an Arsenal perspective at this moment in time, but you know, maybe that's one we just have to put our heads in the sand with and, and say, look, this is what's happening and this is this is what we're gonna have to do. But like you say, for Pepe it's a big chance because, you know, he's had a summer off, he can come back and hopefully he can finish the season strongly, assuming we don't sign another thirty-three year old has been to play in, in front of him. Um the the work that still needs to be done from an Arsenal perspective is quite something. I was just thinking about it before uh, we started talking. And Matteo Ganduzzi, who we'll talk about now in a second, is gone. That's a situation that's been resolved. But still, Arsenal, with um, just over a month now until the start of the new season, have to deal with Lucas Torreira. They have to figure out what they're going to do with Joe Willock. They have to sort out whatever's happening with Ainsley Maitland-Niles. The uh, Ann situation is one which probably uh, demands some kind of resolution as well. Alexandra Lacazette, again, simply because of the contractual situation. Eddie Nketiah, Rhys Nelson, Granite Xhaka, the goalkeeping situation. There is still a lot to do, isn't there? I mean, way more than I would like, and I certainly wouldn't um, like to have to be doing all this, but there's there's a lot to be going on with still.
2: And I think a lot of the times, my response to this would be something like, "Well, look, you can't get everything done, but actually, there's a lot that you ha- you just have to get done." So, mm. you made the point with Ancelotti and Nelson, Lacazette—that's three players out of contract in the summer,
1: next summer. Two of
2: whom yeah. Sorry, ne- yes, of course, yep. next summer. Who? Two of whom you would look to get a still decent fee from. I think in Ancelotti and Nelson, um, why it is that? Late in the late in the season, come early in the summer. You know these players were being offered new contracts. Those two in particular, it, it rather beggars belief. I know there's also been reports of the same—a one-year extension for Lacazette. I actually kind of see the logic to that. Of just you know, we do have so much to do. Can you tie this over for another year? I, I don't. I don't want to be overly critical because I think it's also fair to point out Arsenal have got their backup uh, left back, which is a really important position because uh, you know Tierney's. Fundamental to functioning of the teams mm. and the little injury prone. Laconga's coming in, Ben White. Mm-hmm. We could spend, a am sure, a whole podcast debating whether that's the right use of resources, but at least it is very near to getting done. Um, it's just, it, it, you know, again, this is not absolving anyone currently in place of any responsibility or blame because they've had a long time to tide things up now. But by God, there was a huge, huge backlog of. Contracts that weren't agreed, of, of deals that weren't addressed, and it's it, it's not being cleared. And it, you know these are these are all issues that stop you from kind of getting out and, and doing other things. There is always going to be a bandwidth issue. You know, I know that people think you know that three or four transfer deals can be done at once, and sometimes you know under real pressure situations they can. But if you're a club like Arsenal, you need to do your due diligence. You need to be really careful. You need to understand. If we're selling Reece Nelson for eight million, what does that you know? What does what are the knock-on effects of that? Where is that eight million going to go? It you know, mm. needs to be a lot of joined-up thinking and joining that those dots together. takes time, and it feels like more of this work could have been done earlier, particularly on the on the contract side. And you're you know, Arsenal fans are understandably worrying about the, the contractual status of someone like Smith Rowe because he should be coming up for negotiation now. But you have so many players that you have to deal with before you can, before you can, in theory, think about it. Yeah. I mean, I suppose
1: one thing to point out is that, like, I'm talking about what needs to be done before the start of the season, and the window goes until August 31st. So that is something which has an impact, whether people like it or not. It does have an impact on what gets done, because... Uh, we know there's an element of brinksmanship, you know, as the window comes to a close, do you sell low, can you buy low, et cetera, et cetera. You know, deals happen because there is the pressure of time. It's like anything. If you've got a deadline, you go, ah, I'll do it next week. But as soon as the deadline comes, you're busy, busy. And that's just the way the market works. So that that's part and parcel of what we're going to have to contend with as well. But I do think... You know, trying to get as many of these things sorted out in as timely a fashion as possible uh, is a big part of what they need to get done. This summer, that's Edu, that's Mikel Arteta, that's Richard Garlick, that's Vinai, that's the executive committee, that is the owners. It's KSE. It's making sure that things can happen um, in as timely a fashion as possible. So we're in as uh, strong a position as possible uh, when the season starts. But, you know, there is still so much to do. Uh, it's making my head hurt now just even thinking about it. But um, Let's talk Matteo Ganduzzi for a moment. He is gone to Marseille it's permanent even though it's a loan deal there is an obligation to buy why it wasn't quite announced like that I don't know but uh, I'm told reliably that that he is you know gone on a permanent basis I don't think you write the kind of farewell message that he wrote unless you're going on loan where do you where do you stand on on the Genduzy situation, is it a talent wasted? Is it just uh, a young player we brought in who did okay and um, wasn't maybe quite as good as some people said and circumstances have dictated his departure in, in this way? I mean, do you feel regret that this has happened or is this just one of the things that Arsenal had to do?
2: I, I'm, I'm, you know, on the Gwen, when it comes to Guendouzi, I'm a, I'm a huge fan I, I think I I would have liked to persevere with him. I totally understand why you just don't feel you can, because, you know, some of the, some of the, the way in which he acted was fundamentally just, you know, wasn't the level of maturity and responsibility expected of an Arsenal player. Mm. People will say this is about, you know, the incidents at, at Brighton, the incidents on the tour, but it's not just about that. Is it? It's about how you then respond when being told
1: yeah. to
2: make amends. And he, he hasn't. And I think that's re- What's disappointing is, I think it may be in the end, he might have ended up being a rotation option. I think equally, though, he might have ended up being a really top-quality midfielder that you would have loved to to partner someone like Partey with. I still remember, you know, I go back to that Brighton game. When he played, the, the first 45 minutes he played, he was sitting in front of the defence and marshalling it like a veteran, Not not... Someone that's just out of his teenage years, but I think you know in the end that there is a if there is a level of talent at which you have to accept the difficulties of certain players, i'm just not sure that Gwennduzzi ever quite convinced me mm. a huge fan of Gwennduuzi, let alone players that are more uh, people that are more doubtful over him that I just in the end i wasn't quite sure it was worth the effort he's not impossible to replace it's a real disappointment that. A player, I think we saw in the first 15 months, and that clearly, you know, that we saw under Unai Emery. And it should be said, Emery did a fantastic job of managing this this guy who has, has pretty much fallen out with every other manager. That that player could have been a starter, could have been a player you sell for huge amounts of money to another club, could have been everything. And I think, you know, it's real disappointment that Arteta and he couldn't couldn't click. And that's clearly not just. Guendouzi's fault either you know as a manager it's kind of sometimes incumbent on you to get the best out of difficult people difficult employees but was he quite good enough to be worth what might have been the aggro I mean mm. would you back him over Arteta probably is, not it's, people, you, you just don't want to change manager because of one difficult player sure
1: I mean look I think you're right to point out that what happened with Guendouzi wasn't simply about what happened at Brighton. You know, that, that incident where he grabbed Mopé, yeah. that wasn't what saw him shit-can. There was a lot going on um, behind the scenes there as well. So it wasn't just one thing or that trifling thing. And people say, well, look, you know, why did Ganduzi get uh, dumped when, you know, Willian went to Dubai or Shaka grabbed someone by the throat? You know, it, there was more going on with Ganduzi behind the scenes. But I think you raised an interesting point about... So-called difficult characters and the manager uh, and and the way that he deals with them. I'm, I'm curious as to what you think about this, because some have said that, that maybe that's something Mikel Arteta isn't good at, dealing with so-called difficult characters. Some people might say, actually, that's something he's pretty good at in terms of being decisive and making decisions about these guys if you know if Messidosa was difficult that was the end for Messidosa if Genduzi was difficult that was the end for Genduzi so you could argue that not being able to manage a difficult player is when that difficult player you can't discipline him in any way and he keeps misbehaving or he keeps having issues or he keeps causing problems behind the scenes whereas if you say okay these are the Standards, dare I say, non-negotiables, You're you're not living up to them. Therefore, these are the consequences of that. Whether you agree with that or not, at least it suggests the manager is dealing with a situation in a fairly decisive way, rather than it becoming an ongoing saga, as can very easily happen in football. These things just go on and on, and players and managers have these periods of like, well, okay, we've made up again and now it goes wrong again. And, and, you know, so there is something to be said about like, uh, maybe he, he, uh, the perception of him dealing with difficult characters is because he's dealing with them in a way that people don't like because they yeah. like the players. Maybe, I don't know. You know, it's, it depends on your perspective, I guess.
2: I think, I think in a way, at least it's welcome that he is consistent that, you know, if you, if you aren't, living up to those non-negotiables that you're in the bomb squad. You know, you will not, you will not figure. And is, you know, he, he sticks by that. I think, you know, if we go back to, to Emery's management of the Ozil situation, and, you know, this again, this is not all on Mesut Ozil, uh, caveat that, but it was, it was that it was never felt consistent, that it never felt like mm. Mesut Ozil was more than three or four bad games away from being drawn in from the cold. And, Yes, the, the the question never went away early in Arteta's reign, but only because, you know, the the, the press, which obviously had to include myself, and didn't, you know, there's always questions to be asked, and you want to know about it because mm. he's the most highly played. Player. But you know, that's probably the reason why he bristled. It seems like, well, why are we still talking about this person that you you're just not going to see play for Arsenal again? I, I think it's certainly. Uh, uh, you can either have you can have consistency or you can have that degree of chaos you can have that degree of you're in one week you're out the other sometimes i think maybe the, the chaos the the more disorganized can actually be a little bit more effective on the pitch we see this with chelsea that you know if you're willing to bring a player in from the cold you know sometimes we're under a new manager they can become a completely different player and well i think you hit the nail on the head there it's a, it's a new manager right you
1: have a to bring, i mean that's but, how,
2: there's, there's always this is always the conversation with Arteta, and when people sort of say, "You know, is he the right man to back?" Well, who, who's your alternative? Um, he he is at least he is at least being consistent, and we know therefore that he is going to build a squad like that over the long term that doesn't have those difficult characters. Now, those difficult characters can sometimes be the players that that can win three games in a row for you. But um, mm. I mean, you, you, I suppose at least you do have to say uh, it's. There's no room for negotiation here. It's yeah, you're in or you're out. I mean, I think it's a million, which did seem. I was, I was disappointed in. I thought it was particularly because I think that actually is an issue that probably resonates with fans more than it resonates with Arteta, because we're going. Why the hell is he flying off to Dubai when we here can't? Go sure. the yeah. Once, no, I get it.
1: And look, I'm not in any way going to um defend William or anything about him, but you know, there are aspects of all these situations that we are not privy to. Mm-hmm. So what looks bad from the outside, and it was bad, I think it was bad from William to go and you know post pictures with the sprinkly meat wanker <laughs> and and all that right um it was bad but maybe there are
2: that would be one of my non-negotiables
1: yeah absolutely over
2: i saw you doing that yeah yeah. You're at the team if you go to that, that guy's expensive steak restaurant.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Anyway, look, you know there are aspects to all of these things that that we're that we're not privy to, and and the decision making behind those. Um, so it it does seem perhaps that one person is being treated differently from another, but behind the scenes, we we just don't know. And look, there's a there's a level of where you know how how easy is it to be tough on a player. Like he did it with Aubameyang, you know, going into the North London Derby, and that must have been a really frightening decision to make as a manager, right? Because if you lose that game and you drop your captain and your best striker, you know, you're on a hiding to nothing. But he still did it. But but the point is, I think, it's... I'm not going to say easy, but it's easier to drop or dump a Mesut Ozil who's in pretty clear decline than it is mm. to drop and dump a Mesut Ozil at the height of his powers. Similarly, Genduzi had talent, but not sufficient talent that would make you go, okay, you're so important to this team that I really don't like what you're doing. I don't like how you've responded to it, but we need you. You know what I mean? Mm. So the the talent versus... Yeah, how useful a player is to you has an, has an important uh, part of you know how you're dealt with by the manager as well.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it is a real disappointment. I think that Gwendozi, just that I think I, in the end I got the impression that as much as the, I, I, there were times where I loved it, I, I remember a moment. Maybe you remember it's opening game of um, nineteen twenty. He clips Almiron, sends him flying, and um, you know looks in utter shock at the referee when a, a foul is given. <laughs> and he's so shocked, I think it convinces the referee not to give a yellow card. And the minute he turns around, he's smirking. And I think there is though the, the question is whether you can whether you believe you can channel that side, which is not is is part of what Arsenal wanted him. Yeah, yeah. Is he's, he's a bit difficult. He's, uh, he, you know, he, he, he's on the edge, and on the edge is great. On the edge is what the Arsenal midfielders often needed. And I do wonder if a more seasoned, experienced manager might have known how, from following that Dubai incident, following those early months, might have just mm. had a little more confidence to, to play the grey areas, to, to not run this as a black-and-white thing. But, you know, Arsenal knew that's what they were getting when they hired Mikel Arteta. And I think also, you know, with Arteta, that he, I don't think that's in his character. And I, even when he is more experienced, mm. I think there will be a pretty small number of occasions where he's he's bent his principles yeah. for any player. But look, I'm, I'm really disappointed because I liked the footballer. On occasions, I loved the character and um, I wish there were more... Players like Mateo Gwenduzzi in the Arsenal squad.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you make a good point about the character. It is about channeling that, and then you wonder, you know, how much character is allowed within a very mm. structured environment. Like, it's not like Mikel Arteta didn't have a bit of that about him as a player himself. You know, he wasn't a, f- a hatchet man, but like, you know, when you saw him play for Everton, when you saw him play for, for Arsenal, you know, He wasn't a shrinking violet. I'm not saying he was like Mr. Tough Guy or he was like the the archetypal leader. But, you know, he had that kind of a little bit of an edge to him, which he needed because he was a good player, but not necessarily a, a great player. You know, so you have to have those other things which give you a bit of an advantage. But, you know, maybe that's part and parcel of the job of a manager and a new manager is, like you say, when Emery came in and compromised his principles over the Ozil situation it's sort of started to unravel for him a bit. So if you compromise publicly or in front of your squad, uh, maybe that's just not something you can do. So we'll wait and see. Um, and we'll wait and see who who next is victim to the hatchet man, Miguel Arteta, <laughs> um, as uh, next season begins. But look, we better leave it there, James. Thanks a million as always. Enjoy Sunday, whatever happens, and we will chat to you soon. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much indeed to James. You can find him on Twitter at Jamesbench, at Jamesbench. And he does football stuff for CBS sports. Okay. We're going to leave it there for now because, well, there's not much happening from an Arsenal perspective. No news. You will have noticed that we've got through an entire podcast without mentioning the name. And that I think is a remarkable piece of audio history in this day and age. It's never happened before. It may never happen again. But here we are, always innovating, trailblazing, if you like. No doubt we'll have more on him in the very near future. Perhaps on Monday, when James and I are here for the Arscast Extra, the morning after the Euro 2020, except in 2021, final. Will James have the good hangover? or the bad hangover where he can't even eat pizza because that will remind him of the bad thing that happened. We will see. To all of you, thank you very much indeed for listening. Thank you for being here as always, for subscribing, for your comments, and all the rest. It's hugely appreciated. Enjoy the football on Sunday, whatever happens, and we will catch you on the next one. Until then, cheers. Bye-bye.
3: Welcome to Late Night here on BBC4. I'm your host, Malcolm Malcolmson. My guest this evening is Professor Gilbert Twatchlock, son of the esteemed Professor Godfrey Twatchlock, inventor of the supercomputer. Tonight we ask the question that everybody is looking for the answer to. Is it coming home? Professor Twatchlock, is it coming home? Well, it's a difficult question to answer in the sense that first we must come to some kind of understanding or agreement as to what it is. For some people, it is a scary clown hiding in the drains. For others... A game of association football. So in that sense, it requires both the clown people and the football people to be open to the idea that their it is not the it they thought it was and they've got to be receptive to the idea that there is another it in the universe and that can be quite the problem because people don't like to have their preconceived notions challenged. Mm, I see... If there were some accord found over the concept of what it is, what then about the idea of it coming home? Again, this is a very difficult one to answer because one man's home is another man's public convenience. Is home a three-bed semi with a garage? Is it a mansion in the hills? It all depends on the perspective. Some will say that wherever they lay their hat, That is their home, and here lies the paradox. Football cannot exist in a hat. But what is under the hat, mayhaps it is football itself. But does football want to live in a hat that is someone else's home? And here is the answer. It all depends on what kind of hat it is. Hmm?
0: Hmm?